There is neither happiness nor misery in the world, said Alexander Dumas. There is only the comparison of one state with another, nothing more. Live then and be happy, beloved children of my heart, and never forget that until the day God will deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. And I have nothing to add to that. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Season 5, Interview with Dr. Zhenya Fleischer. Okay, I'm here with Dr. Zhenya Fleischer, chemist, one-time refusedic now, resident of Jerusalem, mother of three, and mother of my dear friend and colleague, Rabbi Yishai Fleischer. Dr. Fleischer, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's a true pleasure, Wayne. I'm really excited because as we were speaking about before the show began, the Jewish story listeners have been deep in the tale of the Jewish 80s. You know, the 1980s, both in Israel, in America, even at least from a distance in the former Soviet Union, time it wasn't former, right? And uniquely, you've lived in all three, although, as you just said to me, it was important that I introduce you by saying resident of Jerusalem. Why is that? Why was that so important to say? I always wanted to live in Jerusalem. When I first came to Israel, we lived in Haifa. I went, like most of the Russians, I went to Technion. Uh-huh. My PhD is from Technion. So it's, it's in Haifa, and uh, Jerusalem was far. But it was uh, like always like a source of Jewish inspiration. Even when I was in Russia, it was like a mystical name, you know, like yeah. from literature. Sure. I mean, Jerusalem has always been that light on the horizon for the Jewish right. people. Also in Russian literature is a prominent presence. They're absolutely both because of the Russian Orthodox and just because Jerusalem is a city that, that you, can't, uh, you can't ignore. No, the Russian Orthodoxy was not uh, of any significant influence when I lived in Russia. Because, well, of course, right, because it was the communist state. <laughs> right, but uh, Russian literature, for instance, uh, uh, you know, Bulgakov, his famous uh, master, like master, uh, master and Margarita, book, you know, the part of, of the story happens in Jerusalem. Also, Bunin, like Russian Nobel laureate uh, of the 20s or, or the 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he published a great memoir of his travels in the Middle East. I read it all. That's fascinating. I had no idea that Jerusalem held a place in right. what, I, no, what I think yeah. of as secular, also, so to speak. Also Russian in the Russian poetry. It's like in a Jewish culture where, like, religion as culture is very mixed. It's very right. hard to, like, part them. Let's, so let's same, not even try. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the same thing is, uh, you know, kind of in Russia. From Jerusalem was always kind of present in my life. I Beautiful. Think about it. So I, I want to go backwards um, because I'd like to start, if I may, by asking that you tell us a little bit about your life as a Jew in the Soviet Union. Eventually, as a refusing, but if you can, most people have really no context, certainly today. I had a very good childhood, a very happy childhood. And uh, my um, grandparents on the mother's side were uh, native Yiddish speakers. Mm-hmm. Well, they did not speak Yiddish in the house, but from time to time they would. And oh. especially to say something which, uh, you know, they wanted to keep secret from the of, children. Of who course. Grand- <laughs> grandchildren. And we did not have 
like Jewish holidays in, in, in this world. Well, now as I grew up, I think backwards that uh, some of the like big meetings of the entire family were probably the Jewish holidays that Jen didn't tell us. Uh, meaning you knew your family came together and that was probably special as a child, right. but you didn't necessarily know why. No. And another thing I remember that my grandfather and his brothers, they uh, would also like meet uh, together and they would read Sholem Aleichem in Yiddish. They laughed and they were so happy about it and they laughed and laughed. It was very lovely. We always knew that we were Jewish because it's actually written in your passport. Right. But, and it is a very important, very important point. My entire family were Russian Jews. I mean, originally, my, my grandfather family are from Pinsk, which mm-hmm. is just white Russia, Biola Russia. But originally, by the time when the war came, and it was a defining moment in the you know Russian Jewish history, the Second World War. My entire family lived in Russia. They did not live through Holocaust. They were all in the army, in the Russian army. In the Red Army, right. In the Red Army. I have a picture of my grandfather with the with the hat of the Red Army and the and the Red Star. So our Jewishness was not defined by Holocaust. Uh-huh. And you felt Russian also? No, no. I never, never. I mean, I always knew that we were Jewish, but it was, I, I did not really experience anti-Semitism. Okay. We knew, for instance, that in order to, uh, by the time I was uh, about to start university, I wanted to study history. It was forever like a big interest of mine when I was a child, and it's very much, you know, part, big part of my life now. Mm-hmm. But my father told me, no, no, no. You cannot have, you need a profession that is not political in any way. Mm. So chemistry is great. There yeah, is it's about no as non political as you can get. Yes. So, yeah, I think this is the reason why so many Russians are engineers, by the way. It was safe. It is safe. Yeah, it's, it's not, it's not yeah, it's practical, it's not political. Right. So, uh, if it's hard for us to probably to go, you know, very high in, in your career, but many Jews did. In any case, it gives you like a decent life. And uh, so Makes we knew, sense. for instance, in, in order to get into university, if you are a Jew, you have to be better, way better than the others because there is a, um, a, quota. a quota. Quota. Yeah, in a university. So we kind of lived with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, the anti Semitism in the world, of, in a, like as a picture of pogroms. No, uh, I didn't experience that at all. So eventually you made your way to Israel. So something must have changed. What what happened at some stage that made you want to leave? My grandparents were always very excited about the existence of the uh, Jewish state. Mm. I remember stamps. There were stamps from Palestine also stems from Israel, and they were very cherished. I mean, they, my grandparents or my parents never cared much about like uh, collecting stamps, but these stamps were like very important. They were always precious. Precious, yes. And uh, I always had interest in Jewish stuff. 
I cannot, I, I don't remember looking backwards, I don't remember the source of it, but I always had this interest. And my grandfather taught me, Aleph Bet, taught me how to read Hebrew at age, I guess, six or something like that. Was that safe? Was that legal? We did it in the house. Did it in the house. So in the house, it wasn't a, a political act. It was just what you do in your home. I only ask because people speak about the underground Hebrew lessons in other contexts. That was later. But uh, later. I, I was like six or okay. seven, something like that. Sure. But another like very important element of my uh, upbringing was that you never, ever say outside of the house the things that you heard in the house. Never to anybody. Was that about being a Jew or was that about the fear of the communist well, state in general? In general. Being Jew, political, nothing. Right. Majority of the Jewish families would not speak openly in the presence of their children. Mm-hmm. But my father was very much against it and he said, she's a part of the family and uh, that's the rules. Right. These are the rules and, and I never... Never said anything. <laughs> so, so you look yeah. back. You you always had some love and attachment to things Jewish, right. and the, the, the stems right. from from Israel or Palestine right. before Israel. Right. Right. So, when did you begin to make that an active part of your own life? How did that happen? Because there were risks as you got older. There were always like a trickling of the of the immigration to Israel. Uh-huh. Not from Leningrad, mm-hmm. but from Baltic republics. Uh-huh. And we have a lot of connections to... To, to the Baltics. Yes. We uh, lived for a couple of years in the, there. So uh, we always knew that the people are going. And in the 67... 67 was like a watershed for everybody. It was like unbelievable. I remember like people and me probably like glued to the radio because like my father bought a Panasonic radio that you can listen to the Voice of America, Voice of Israel and uh, Voice of Freedom. Everybody was listening to it and the Jews were calling to each other, telling, you know, what's going on, what they heard. And in the beginning, it was uh, like t- terrible. Uh, then when the truth came out, it was like a great holiday. And it changed everything. It changed the entire Jewish atmosphere. And also Goyim looked at us completely in a different, completely different way. There were like tons of jokes about you know, Jews, about the war. And they were kind of nice jokes. The image of Jew changed ah. with that war. Yeah. So for you, I mean, I hear the the excitement. I hear the, the change in status. But when you say everything changed, what changed most for you? I kind of started to realize uh, that I do not want this life of part of the Russian Jewish intelligentsia. I just don't want it. And what did you do? So when I started the university, I studied like in a department of chemistry, but we have at the St. Petersburg University, there is a very big and important, very old and 
very well known and highly developed department of oriental languages which goes back like 100 years like we have here in jerusalem the presence of russian um, like uh, oriental studies you know all over the city as a student of university i had the right to listen to any lectures of my uh, choosing only if it doesn't interfere with my normal uh, like studies. So I went to the faculty of Oriental languages and I took classes in Hebrew. That was funny because at the same time, uh, this underground, I didn't know about that. Uh, all these underground names started to pop up uh, in, in the country and <laughs> like and, and people like had to do it underground and it was dangerous. But I, I did it completely openly. You were doing and, in a lecture hall. Yeah. Yeah and, I, yeah, and I had a great teacher. It was Professor Vinnikov, who like, uh, and we actually studied Hebrew uh, from the um, from the Xeroxes. You remember Xeroxes? Sure. <laughs> of the original of, of the Bible. Mm-hmm. I never saw the Bible in any language. You had never it seen. Was, how old were you? Uh, like uh, at that point, like uh, like seventeen, eighteen, eighteen years old, never seen the Bible. The first time no, you no, saw it was no. a Xerox page in the yeah. languages department of, of uh, <laughs> Saint Petersburg yes. uh, yeah, University. I didn't, I didn't see the Bible in Russian either. Right, right. Never. Communist state. It's not. It wasn't a question no. of the Jews. It was no. a, an opposition. No, to religion. no. It's not that. It's in every hotel in the in the drawer. There's a Bible in Russian. Huh? Right. No. That's so, the way it is. Right. It was like an eye opening for me because um, the teacher, like the professor, was great. Also, the students, some of them, they're extremely interesting. It's opened the picture, which was much more uh, alive than what we had before. Mm-hmm. For instance, in Russian language, there was in my time, there was a word Talmudist. Talmudist. Yeah. That was an, it had a totally negative connotation. Right. It, it means to be a person who is uh, uh, who cares about little, um, like not important details about everything. Nudnik in simple it, words. Right, it's the way the Christian culture uses Pharisees. Like instead of nudnik, no, the word yeah. nudnik didn't exist, but Talmudist was. So, and so. this opened up a new picture for you. It opened a new picture for me. Then there was one of the students who, when he called me, and oh, everybody was Russian. There were no Jews there. He called me and he said, you know, I want you to listen to a song. He told me, I heard a wonderful song on the voice of Israel. He was like very talented and he could understand the voice of Israel in Hebrew. Uh-huh. Uh, and the voice of Israel in Hebrew, you could listen freely because it wasn't interrupted. Mm-hmm. So, so he came with his radio and he let me hear Wow, you listened to Jerusalem of Gold in yeah. your university class, and it yeah. was almost oh, like not homework. In class. No, no, not no, in class, but my, but with one of my... the fellow students. Yeah, so so I said, "Wow, that, that I mean, it's I mean, at that point we already imagined uh, Israel like a real thing, not something not fairy tale, mystical, right." How old were you when you started thinking about actually leaving? 
In the beginning, I didn't do anything except for learn Hebrew, but I started to think about in a very, very definite terms. I kind of knew inside me that I'm not going to live my life here. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Something will come, <laughs> and I'm going to live my life somewhere else. Like, definitely away. No, and then we started, like, I, I kind of got into this Jewish uh, Zionist organizations. So uh, we talk about it, and we're like other people. Then people started to leave. By the way, the big breakthrough was done by Jews in Georgia. In Georgia. Georgia, yeah. They were kind of fearless. I think Georgians have a fearless reputation in general. Yes, this is uh, like a border. Georgia is a Christian country on the border of a um, like huge and very cruel Muslim world, and they were always fighters. So yeah, maybe that is a part of it, yes. They kind of made a huge breakthrough, huge. And then there was this story with, with, the, pl- with the plane. I, I was that a- story for my listeners. They've heard yeah. it. Yeah, I was a little bit involved with it, like, inside. Then they let out a big group of people who applied, that were connected in any way to, to the story of the plane. They let them out. And I went with them. That was in what year? 1972. 1972. So that's very early. Very early, yeah. My parents and I owe the huge appreciation of their love for me because they let me go. When I left and I said goodbye to my parents, I did not expect to see them ever again. And did you? Did, yeah, definitely. How much later? Way later, years later. Years later. Tell me something. You, in 1972... You got out, and if, if the listeners want to go back to the first episode on Soviet Jewry, they can hear the story of that hijacking and the impact it had not only for... I was focused there on the impact in, in energizing the student struggle for Soviet Jewry in America, but uh, what you're pointing out is it had a very immediate impact for Soviet Jews like yourself, and you came to Israel, and now you meet the reality. And what I'm curious about is how did that reality... Great. Match the dream. Great. Great. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. Like, Israel was in this, uh, actually, in the best year. It was like after six day war and before Yom Kippur. That was a very magic time. It was a, a magic time to arrive. Yes. So I was in, in Ulpan, and in, in Ulpan was very international. We have people from like 13 countries there. Ulpan also was very different from what it is now, because it's not only taught, taught you Hebrew, it's also taught you culture, right. songs, and Hagin, and holidays. It was nation building on the personal level. Right, right. And the teacher was great, and they took us for trips, and I went to Hebron. I kind of wandered from the group and I walked the streets of Hebron totally alone. Wasn't, I wasn't aware that I was supposed to be afraid. Well, like mother, like son, apparently. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was like very, very eye-opening for me. Every summer of my university, I worked in archaeology 
in some remote places, mostly in Central Asia, which is like East. And uh, so like when I came here, it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, what is that? <laughs> where, where did I come to? Yeah, no. What was the biggest challenge? In Israel? Yeah. It went so easy and smooth. How long were you here? 12 years. 12 years. So from 1970 to 1984. I have a strange question because one of the big events of the 80s that we spoke about in Israel was Prime Minister Menachem Begin's decision to withdraw from the Sinai. Now, I happen to know from your son, you guys had a personal love for the Sinai as a place. I'm curious, as a Jew who had struggled, it sounds like you were very blessed in that struggle being kind of brief and bearing fruit quickly, but nonetheless had struggled and was aware that many of your friends, surely family, etc., were still struggling. What was your reaction when Israel decided to withdraw from the Sinai? It is really hard to put in words what was Sinai for us. Sometimes I meet people my age here in Israel that look a little bit like uh, old hippies. We kind of exchange glances and talk, remember Nueva? Remember Tahana Delet Nueva? Remember Nueva, like gas station? Doesn't mean anything for like somebody who doesn't know what was it. Sinai was a land of freedom. Nobody, not we, not anybody, not an Israelis, not, there were many like foreigners there too. That kind of freedom nobody ever experienced. Like the beach, the, the line of the beach of Sinai is 300 kilometers. Endless. Yeah, there were no hotels. That you drive now, like from here to from Elat to Sharm el Sheikh, and it's uh, it's like a resort. There was nothing, absolutely nothing. So we went to Sinai at least twice a year, at least twice a year for Pesach and for Sukkot. Ishai, as a little boy at that time, he thought that there's a, always a full moon in Sinai. <laughs> Yeah, because we because you were there for the festivals. <laughs> That's yeah, oh, wow. that what a beautiful like, image, a beautiful yes. childhood image. Yes, so like you can go whatever you want, and you can do whatever you want, and like Israel used to be small, and it became huge. And Sinai, when you when you walk Sinai, it's uh, it's, it's it's endless, and it could take north, you forty years. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the north of it with with this with the sand dunes and like a little bit, you know, like Sahara type of view, and the south with the mountains of Sinai is it's magical. It's unbelievably the arrow of it like filled Mikhaimitin, you know, right. like it's the, the resurrection of the dead. Yeah. Uh, it was unbelievable. And the people, we became very friendly, not only my husband and I, like all of that group of people became very friendly with the Bedouin of Sinai. Bedouin of Sinai were very happy with Jews. They did not like Egyptians. That they never felt themselves to be Egyptian. Uh-huh. And and Sinai is not Egypt. I mean, this is this is like a modern invention that Sinai belongs to Egypt. Yeah. So, so- yeah. So when we gave. Gave up Sinai is like 
part of our soul. Don't you think? So in the beginning, we didn't want to go there. We didn't go. And then we started to go again. So we, we were coming to Israel. When we went to America, we were coming to Israel like once, usually twice a year again. And we would go to see that. But something was lost. That, that land of freedom that you yes. described. Yes, the, the sense of freedom disappeared. Also, it was like a sense of like, like, like history. History. Mm. We are back to Sinai. Sinai yeah. belongs to us. And there were wonderful songs uh, about Nachal Besinai, Erzub Nachal Besinai, and Mitzarit Iran. Yeah. The trades. In the beginning, Egyptians were kind of mild, but there was army and there were rules where you should go, where should you go, and the passport control, and all kinds of stuff. The the Bedouin life was basically the same because like they've been there. For far longer than. (laughs) Right, right. Right. But we studied Sinai and we we hiked Sinai, we, the archaeology, their geology, like plants. Uh, it, it was like a very exciting plant, you know, like Harsinai uh, and the monastery there, and the, one of the oldest uh, Codex Sinaiticus is from there. Right. And part of it is in St. Petersburg. I saw it in the Academy of Sciences in St. Petersburg, which has, by the way, one of the biggest in the world, the most important collection of the Hebrew manuscripts. Someday we'll see those again. I want to pivot with this image of Sinai as the land of freedom to another land of freedom. Because in, in the mid-80s, you, you, having started off in one of the major Jewish centers of the world and then moved to Israel and in the, into the other, in, in the mid-80s, you made it to America. Right. Now, now, something I've spoken about a lot in the Jewish story is the, the journey of American Jewry from what we might call the ethnic enclave Right, the sort of um, classic Jewish ghettos that were built in the Lower East Side of New York or in, in other cities, out into the suburbs. Right, That process that happened for American Jewry in the 50s and 60s. But by the 80s, one of the uh, sort of phenomenon that we've been speaking about is how American Jews were so American that it challenged their Jewishness. Right, I mean, Their assimilation and intermarriage were big challenges for American Jewry. And I'm curious, as someone who grew up knowing that she was Jewish and not Russian, even though you didn't have as much access, maybe, as American Jews did to ways of being Jewish, the communist state not being so enthusiastic about religion, then going to Israel, and then to America, what was your experience as a Jew when you arrived in America? In Russia, my Jewish education consisted of reading a lot of Sholem Aleichem, and... Uh, Leon Fechtswanger, which is a German Jewish writer, for some reason is very few translations into English, and he's not well known here. But uh, he was a great German Jewish writer, and he wrote a lot of books about Jews and Jewish life. And another thing that I got from my parents and from my family upbringing it was one big Jewish thing. Never, ever marry a goy. Never marry a goy. Nobody in, my, in our family, except for one, actually married a goy. 
that was one thing. Then I come to Israel, and Israel was a land of freedom for me. Sinai was like, but uh, but Israel also, you know, like we were not religious at all. I mean, we had very few ideas of uh, what is the religious way of life. Sure. Because we lived in Haifa, Red Haifa. I went to Technion that would, like I always tell this story, and like there was a, this like dining hall at Technion. And in the corner of it, there was like a sink and there was a cup, strange cup with two handles. Two handles. And it was kind of chained to the wall. And I asked people, what is this strange thing? What is that? And it took me six months until I got an answer. So you can understand <laughs> wow. what was the level of, of Jewishness. Like, if people listening aren't aware, it is traditional to wash one's hands before eating no, bread. No, on the, other hand, on the other hand, my uh, PhD advisor once told me, listen, I want you to go with me to the lecture. There is somebody who is very interesting, is giving a lecture, so let's go, you will enjoy it. Okay, it happened to be the one of the last appearances of Gershom Scholem. Wow. Yes. And he gave uh, a lecture about Ariya Kadosh. Right. So you heard a lecture about one of the greatest mystics in history from the right. greatest historian of Jewish mysticism. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So it's also technical. Right. So that was your experience in Israel. And then as a Jew coming to then America. I come to America and uh, in America we experience religion. In Haifa, we went to Shul on Yom Kippur. Isha is uh, like a babysitter who was a lovely Arab Muslim woman. So she spoke perfect Arabic. So we had like more connections to like Muslim religion than to like Jewishness. But in America, all of a sudden, boom, they are all, all from Jews. We figured that we should send Ishai to a Jewish school for, so he won't lose his Hebrew. But people there, they had a much, much broader view of Judaism. What do you mean? They saw us, basically, as I became friends. I'm still friends with our neighbor in Passaic, New Jersey, where we landed, actually. The rabbis and vice Maybe you know her, like she, she, she's the daughter of Rav Schwab. Oh, wow. I know Rav Schwab, sir. So these people are so that we just don't know much. They so that we are like opened. So they invited us for Shabbat and Misha went to this Jewish school. And when the boy goes to Jewish school, he's in the like environment which is religious. And there were a lot of immigrants that were studying in these schools for free for the first year. But then we were thinking about taking him away and from that school. We bought a house and we thought he'll go to the public school, which there was a beautiful path through the forest to the school. I thought it's so romantic. Oh my God. And suddenly there was an advisement and the school principal they all of a sudden they told them no. I said, what do you mean no? <laughs> like, said, I thought no. this was a land of freedom. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't do that, they said. We were like very stunned. Like we don't understand why. And I said, listen, there have been many 
boys, Russian mostly boys, that also went for one year and they left and you didn't say a word. And they told me, no, not this shy. No, not this shy. And then I came home and I told my husband, listen, it looks that these people know something that we don't know. So, so we came back to school and they told me, what's your biggest problem? And I said, listen, we just took a mortgage. Schools are expensive. And Robinson Weizmann said, so money is a problem? That's not a problem. We'll make a collection. I heard that and I knew how they live. And then I came home and said, Sasha, that's it. We should do that. So that was a moment that made us realize that there is more at stake than just, you know, the distance to school, more paying a mortgage or something like that. So I am so grateful, you know, to, to these people. So we sent Ishai to a Jewish school, different Jewish school. Some another rabbi from Pasig, Rabbi Zupnik, he took upon himself to teach us for a year, for free. My husband, Sasha, our friend, Joseph Spungen, and me. We started once a week. So, so I mean, this is an amazing arc. The American Jews kind of took it upon themselves to... To give you religion. Yeah. Right? Meaning you always knew you were a Jew and you got that identity in the Soviet Union. In Israel, you got a taste of that, that sort of fullness and freedom. But in America, it was where the religion and the Torah came. I want to wrap up, but before I do, I just have to ask that having lived in the three primary Jewish centers of the 20th century... What do you see that we need most today? Somewhere in, in, in your life wisdom, you've seen people survive and thrive in these three different cultures. And here you are living in the modern state of Israel. What do you see that we need most today? Or what do you see as our biggest challenge? You know, when I lived in Russia and I left Russia for Israel and there were like a whole group of the very young Zionistically thinking Jews came to Israel. My feeling was, and many of our friends was, and I know that till this day, some of my friends still think that, that the Jewish experience in Russia was a paramount experience of the Jewish life. Really? That the life, yeah, right. So the, the Russian Jewry, to me, that was like the most important most productive, most interesting, and most profound Jewish experience. When I lived in Israel, and then I came to America, and I figured out, no, not at all. It's just one of the many Jewish experiences in different countries. And most probably the German Jews were more, more important. And of course, the experience of the Jews in the Oriental countries, they like in the, in the Middle East. Anyway, I realized that, uh, you know, I'm always proud, like proud of being Russian, but it's, uh, it's not, I can clearly see that it's not that important. It's one so, of many it, stories. It's one of many, many stories and really not the most uh, like distinctive story. This, but then okay. I come to America and American Jews in the 80s, they thought that they are kings. So, like each and every one of them has a crown on their head. This is the Jewish diaspora, which will like like the most important, like something kind of taught 
that I was familiar to me. I kind of like I thought before about Russians, but of course Americans were like way more like important and influential. And I looked down at Israel as a, like a poor relative that needs American help and needs American Jews to be there strong and important and influence American government and all this. In my lifetime, that picture is not not there anymore, the way I see it. Hmm. The way I see now the American Jews, this is another diaspora, which is waning. It's like going down in its importance and its uh, influence, still having uh, like this self, uh, like, like very busy with self-aggrandizement. Hmm. It seems to me that the most, the biggest challenge is for, for, for Jews is to realize that there is a profound revolution in the Jewish history. State of Israel is not another country and it's not another stage in a Jewish life and it's not a like regional development into something, no. It is the biggest and most important endeavor that the Jewish people ever took upon themselves. And the importance of diasporas, Russian diaspora, Ukrainian diaspora, I don't even read about it. It bores me. So I happen to know that there is something which doesn't bore you, which rather excites you, because I'm friends and colleagues with your son, and that's the Temple Mount. And I want to just take one last minute to close uh, with something which in my eyes sits at the center of our story. I know that you feel a personal attachment to the Temple Mount. Tell me one word about what you would like people to know. There's people, Christians and Jews and, and uh, you know, religious and secular progressives and conservatives that listen to my show. One thing you would like them to know about the Temple Mount and why it's important to you. The Temple Mount is old, very old, and all the temples of the world that existed at the time when our temples stood in this place. They all now like broken uh, ruins, maybe tourist attractions, but they gone and forgotten. This place has kind of gravitation force that it's so much alive, so full of energy and uh, gets it like, like gravitation, everybody wants it. Everybody, it was never abandoned. Everybody wants it. We want it. We have a right to it. But everybody else also wants it and always wants it. This place is different from the rest of the places. I mean, we religious Jews, we know why. We know why. But the other, like people, I don't, I don't know whether they know it or know it, but you know, like to, to put it in the words of great Israeli poet, Uritzvi Greenberg, uh, one who, who owns the Temple Mount rules entire land. This is like, like, like a concentration of all the forces uh, that are here in the Middle East. Like we choose, we don't, we're not that sensitive. Mm. You know, I have to, to say that, you know, when every time I go to Farabayt, I look at it and say, 
there is no other way of uh, pronounce your ownership but to live in the apartment. Since I started, which was like five years ago, like it's many more Jews go there. Many more Jews. It used to be that there was not enough people for Armenian. Now it's much more. Like 25,000 Muslims go there, at least 25,000 Muslims go there every Friday. So you tell me who owns it. You know, this is our generation challenge. This is our generation task. I mean, it, you, you, you can pronounce millions like laws in the Knesset and the right articles until Jews go up. It's kind of meaningless. And the one thing I wanted to say to the, to, you know, the last moment, you know, the research, which is like religious, religious, uh, like geographical, mathematical, in the last 20 years moved uh, so much further about the Temple Mount that we know the where was the uh, the area enclosures and the, the lines of forbidden and it, it, you you know you know there is very little very little controversies like left mm -hmm. so the idea that you cannot go there because you're going to desecrate well it's antiquated idea like maybe rabbis are just didn't read the new stuff well, or maybe rabbis, like everyone else, well, they have, don't a want to read this have, a, have a complicated relationship. I wanted just to wait that I guide on the, on the Harapite. You guide up there, really? That's important to know, because I know, in particular, people that would be looking for, for women to guide them. So that's great. I'm going to keep that in mind. So this is a powerful yes. call. This is a powerful call, because in a world which is really struggling to find its center, what I hear you saying is that this is a place that we've always been drawn to. And the call you're making to people is to come home. Because, like, you show your ownership of an apartment by living it, so so too, your call is for people to come up. When I so, came to Israel, there were three million people. Now, now it's nine. That's right. Nine. And there's only one way that happens. So that's coming to home. So that is, like, you know, the most important part of your uh, of our home. So, Dr. Jenny Fleischer, thank you so much. I think that's a powerful image to end on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and I want to thank also all the folks that are listening. If they want to be in touch with me, you can reach me at robmikefoyer at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook. I'd like to thank all the folks that give their hard-earned money to make this show happen, to keep it free and make it available. You can join them by going to jewishstory.co. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a button that says be a patron. Trying to gain some momentum for season six, people. Dig deep. I need your support. I also like to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com. They're building a center for global transcendence in the heart of Judea. And I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S.org.il, for throwing the doors of the Beit Midrash open as wide as possible. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.